0: And I'll ask you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, where we'll begin our reading for today back in uh, verse 8, Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 8. We're going to get a bit of a running start into the passage that we're really going to look at today. And if you would, as an expression of honor for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me if you're able, as we read from Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 8. God's Word says, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Before we begin to really dive into this passage, I want you to pray with me. And I mean really pray with me, not just close your eyes and listen to me pray. We need to all pray for God to give us wisdom and understanding for his Holy Spirit to reveal this truth to us. So would you bow with me now and pray with me like that? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for revealing aspects of yourself to us. Help us now to understand. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to see you more clearly and to be swept up out of ourselves, out of our situations, into you and your glory and your purposes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are going to really begin our work this morning, starting in verse 14. And you might wonder, why is he moving on from verse 13? He didn't really get to that last week. Um, I'm not afraid of verse 13, if that's what you're implying. So for, I don't like your tone, first off. Uh, I'm, I'm actually doing a pretty in-depth study of verse 13 that I'm writing about on our website. I know not all of you uh, have internet access and can't see that, but if you're interested in it, let me know or somebody can print it out and you can see... Um, But I'm moving on into verses 14 through 18 this morning because it's going to shed a lot of light back on understanding the passage that we tackled last week. Um, It's going to help a lot. So rather than getting bogged down on one particular verse, let's just keep wading through this passage. And you'll find that it presents a cohesive picture that makes sense. And it will help you to understand uh, the particular verses that might snag your mind like verse 13. Does that make sense? Is everybody with me on that? Of course, I've got the face mic. You're with me with whatever I'm doing. So a quick recap for those who have not been here for our whole Romans thing. We are going through the book of Romans, and it is a big, hefty, dense book. We've been going through it for some time. Uh, In this book, it's actually a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome. So he wrote this letter to these Christians, and it was a diverse crowd of people. There were Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Jewish Christians come into faith in Christ with all their Jewish heritage intact. They come in with the, the uh, traditions and the law and the Old Testament and uh, an extensive background of walking with the one true God. Whereas many of these Gentile Christians came in from all sorts of pagan practices and it was all new to them. So one of the reasons Paul is writing this letter is to bring unity from all this diversity. And we've talked about how Paul's approach is the same approach that we need to take as we get more diversity in our flock, that the gospel is what brings true unity. So what we have here in Romans is a very extensive meditation on the gospel, the this bizarre but true news, good news, that God loved the world so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that nobody would die, but everybody who would believe in him would have eternal life. So it's just a long meditation of this truth, and we could spend the rest of our lives, and we who are Christians will spend the rest of our lives meditating and understanding deeper and deeper this gospel. So where we're at now in chapter 9, Paul has just come to this crescendo in chapter 8 of saying God's love is unstoppable. Unstoppable. Nothing can separate us from God's love. You read the the tail end of Romans chapter eight uh, in the morning with your coffee to get charged up for the day. It is good. It's just it's inspiring. It's lofty literature. And then he comes to a bit of a halt and starts to think about that that fact. If God's love is unstoppable, what about all of the Jewish people who reject Jesus? Weren't they God's chosen people? Does their rejection does their rejection bring God's uh, truthfulness into question. So chapter 9 is him thinking through very carefully that question. Can we really rely on this? Is this really true? So we've been working our way through chapter 9, and here we are at verse 14. And what I want to do today is just take on these, what, five verses? Five verses, just one at a time, and just move through them. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to start with verse 14, which says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. See, Paul is a really talented guy. He's a talented speaker and writer. He's got extensive background in the law. And he's really good at predicting the potential objections people are going to have to what he's saying. So here, and you'll see this a lot in his writings, he'll stop and he'll say, So what what does this mean? X, Y, Z? No, not at all. And he throws these rhetorical questions out. That's what he's doing here. He, he's predicting that people are going to have an objection to what he has said in chapter 9. Because basically what he has said in chapter 9 is that God selects some to receive his compassion and not others. And Paul says, so you're probably thinking, does that mean that God is uh, less than just? Now I want to make two quick points about this. First off. You'll notice as you read Paul's writings, his perceived objections that he thinks his audience might have sheds a lot of light on what he meant by his previous statement. I know that may sound confusing, but at the end of, of at verse 13, he says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. What? God loves one brother, hates another? There's an objection that rises up within you. I know it has risen up within you as we have studied this. I want you to just go to that place in your mind and in your heart where these objections are and see clearly what is it that hangs you up at this point. Because I think the fact that he answers this objection right here clarifies that he really meant what he said in the verse before it. See, what we want to do is we want to sort of change his meaning a little bit to make it a little more palatable so that it doesn't bring God's justness into question. But if what it really meant didn't bring God's justice into question, he wouldn't question God's justness in the very next verse. Does that make sense? I know this is kind of a complicated train of thought to follow. I'm going to keep going because it's not a major point. It's just a little side note. So, I wonder what your discomfort is with this passage so far. Keep that in mind as we keep moving. Paul's, the objection Paul wants to answer right now is, does this mean that God is not just? So he continues in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God is just in his sovereign selection of some. That Paul just says, by no means, God is just. So what's he basing that on? He gives another Old Testament quote. We've read a lot of Old Testament quotes since we've been in this chapter. This one comes from Exodus chapter 33. And I do want you to flip there. Exodus chapter 33. And as you're flipping there, you might think that this quote comes from the part of Exodus where God is dealing with Pharaoh. In a couple of verses, we're going to get to Pharaoh. While you're flipping there, I'm just going to refresh your memory of that whole situation. Um, God raises up Moses. Israel's been enslaved in Egypt for 400-ish years. God raises Moses up and says, Moses, go tell Pharaoh who's in charge of this slavery to let my people go. So Moses, this is Reader's Digest version. Moses goes. He says, let these people go. Pharaoh says, "Huh?" uh Moses says, or you're going to get plagued. Pharaoh says, fine. And that goes on ten plagues. And at each plague, God either got, it says either God hardens Pharaoh's heart or it says Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Okay? So that's what Paul's going to talk about in a couple of verses. You would think that this verse comes from that same section. But when you look back at where he pulls that quote, it doesn't at all. It has nothing to do with Pharaoh. This quote comes a long time later after the whole Pharaoh thing. Does this feel like history class? I hope you guys love history class. Everybody loves history, right? Jeff Walsh is like, yeah, history. Okay, I need to flip to Exodus too. Catch up with you guys. So let's read where this quote actually comes from. It's really interesting to me and Jeff. Exodus 33, we'll read 17 through 23, and the quote is in there. See if you can find it as we read. Okay. But Let me set it up. This has nothing to do with Pharaoh. This, is, this conversation between God and Moses takes place during this really weird and intimate time between this man and this God, where they're just talking to each other. And Moses is like, "I really, God, I really want you to go with us, because if you don't, we're as good as dead. And God says, I really like you, Moses. Yeah, I'll go with you. And then verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for, I have found, for you have found favor in my sight. That was what I just translated in the version earlier. I really like you, so yeah, I'll go. This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please, show me your glory. Moses is spending like one-on-one time with God. Who knows what this was like? Who knows what God's voice sounded like to Moses? I can't even wrap my mind around it. But Moses wants more. And he says, please, show me your glory. And he, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So did you hear the quote in there? It was a slightly different, but it's back in verse 19. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This week, I had the privilege and the opportunity of hanging out with Tom Brock. He's not here this morning, so I was going to ask him if I could talk about him, then I remember he's not going to be here this Sunday. I got to go, and uh, we had lunch, and I like to do this as much as I can. Spend time with individuals in the congregation, and um, and he took me back to where he works. And he works at, um, gosh, now what's it called? W W B T T V W G B H T V C. And he he took me through, and I got to see his offices, and I got to see where Bob and Sherry record. I didn't get to see Bob and Sherry, but I got to see their studio. They have their own little studio. Uh, I got to see where John Boy and Billy used to record back when they were with that company. Um, I got to see some weather people. Um, I don't watch Channel 3, so I didn't actually recognize that. I did recognize the sports guy. I saw him in his office as I walked by, and Tom was like, there's a sports guy. I looked in, and he was in his office talking to somebody very animatedly. Um, I got to see, uh, you know, where they take their breaks. I got to see the newsroom. Um, which, you know, isn't as glamorous as you think looking on TV, like there were fingerprint smudges all over the desk that they sit at when they do their reports. And I got to see the robotic cameras. Uh, did you know that there's not anybody behind those cameras? There's one guy up on a stand who works four different cameras with joysticks and they're these big things. It was interesting. Um, and I, I went upstairs, I got to meet a lot of his coworkers and, um, I got to see his office. And I got to see—it's not his office, but it's another room where he does a lot of editing. If you watch Channel Three, you've seen Tom's work. Uh, any of those little promos where it's like graphics on the screen and uh, things swirling around—it says tomorrow night on the news, blah blah blah—and he puts all that together. Um, and he also does commercials; like he produces commercials for people, and he does it really—it's really neat to see what he does. So, so we were in this uh, room that he does his work in. And there's a big monitor and like four smaller monitors and all these gears and dials. It's like our sound system times 10. And he was showing me how he lays the audio in and he lays the graphics in. And he has to go to the art department to get this made and all these things. And um, so I'm sharing all this with you to make you jealous of my time with Tom. And to illustrate what's happening here... um, because of that day, I got to know Tom better. Um, In a sense, it sounds funny to say, but in a sense, I got to see something of Tom's glory. I got to see Tom in his natural habitat. I (laughs) I got to see, you know, what he does. And so I understand him better. And I think that's sort of what's going on between Moses and God. Moses is just saying, I want to know you more. And God says, well, you can't, I can't reveal my whole self to you. It would kill you. I mean, I picture Moses just vaporizing or something. But what God says he will do in verse 19, "I, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord. That alone says something about his sovereignty, his dominion over all things. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It seems an odd detail to slide in there. But I think what's going on is this activity of God, this is what He does. Like I got to see what Tom does. This is what God does. He is the Lord, He is God. And He shows mercy to whom He shows mercy, and He shows compassion to whom He shows pass- compassion. He's gracious to whom He's gracious. And that is really at the heart of what it means to be God. And therefore, he revealed that to Moses when Moses asked to see his glory. So, if you want to know God, if you want to love God and worship God, thinking about accepting and meditating on his sovereignty over who receives compassion and mercy is a big key component of that. Does that make sense? So let's keep moving in Paul's argument. He builds on this point that he made with this quote in verse 15 on into verse 16. This is uh, not quoting anymore. This is Paul writing. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So based on this, what I mentioned in verse 15, that God being gracious to whom he will be gracious, being central to just who God is, based on that... Because of that, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, think about that word mercy. I think a key factor that might be missing in our thinking on this that we haven't really talked about since we entered chapter 9 is that what God gives here, what He's choosing to give to some, is mercy. Mercy implies that it is something, not something earned. Are necessarily deserved. You know the word grace means unmerited favor. We have a problem with some of this I think because we enter it thinking God owes us all mercy and compassion and graciousness. But think about that for a minute. Does he? See the misconception is that God is like a bouncer in front of a really cool club. I've never been to a club clearly. But I've seen it on TV. The misconception is that God is the big guy that stands in front of the door at the club and everybody's dying to get in and he's only letting the ones that, you know, look the best in or something. But that is not the case. Remember what we've studied throughout Romans. See, the real reality is people are tripping over themselves to get away from God. People do not naturally want to be with God forever. People want to be God forever. Let's just take a brief tour back through Romans and hit some highlights. See, Paul has already established all that. That's probably why he doesn't mention it here. He's already talked about all that. So let's just briefly, it's been a while since we've read some of these passages. I'm going to read them, just kind of let it, try to listen. Um, I find that I need to read more and more Bible in my sermons, especially as we get into these harder things. But that's okay. It's God's word. So in Romans 1 we'll start at 18. Paul, this is what Paul said that we've already studied. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And it goes on, who is He talking about? Who are those pff, those terrible people? Well, and In chapter 2, he explains he's talking about you and himself and me. He says, Therefore, in chapter 2, verse 1, You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man... You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I think often we enter like, things like chapter 9, presuming on God's kindness, forgetting that we didn't earn this. We, we don't deserve what God gives out through Christ, his mercy. I could go on in there, but I think I'll just go ahead where he really lays the hammer down in chapter 3. We'll pick up in, inside verse 9. He says, For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks for God. People aren't lined up outside of heaven just banging down the door to get in. No one on their own seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You're like, man, that sounds harsh. Turn on the news and see if you don't see that reflected. Turn on channel three. He goes on. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. Every. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, this is good news in verse 16, that it depends not on human will or exertion. That is really good news, because humans, on their own, prior to the intervention of God, are using their will and exertion to flee from God and worship themselves or other idols. If it depended on our will and our exertion alone, we would all be damned. So this is good news that it depends on God who has mercy, not on our will and our exertion. Now, to put some flesh and bones on this, I want you to think about that person that you're so worried about. You know, everybody has that person or that couple of people that you know is far from God You see no inclination in them to turn toward God, and you wonder, is there hope? I want you to have that person in mind, because what this passage teaches is that there is always hope. I mean, picture the person that you feel is least likely to ever turn toward God. It doesn't depend on that person's will or exertion. It depends on God, who is merciful, who has mercy. Praise God. Praise God, it, did not, it does not, has not depended on my will or exertion to receive his compassion and his mercy and his grace. Praise God that it depends on his will, his mercy. And yet, what's funny about all this, maybe not funny, haha, but we have this desire, we want it to be the other way. I, a lot of our objections to this is we want it to be the other way. We want it to be about our will and our exertion. We want to be in that driver's seat. And I think that's what's behind a lot of the interpretation of this. A lot of the interpretation of this, of God's sovereignty, is that because he knows everything, he looks and sees that one day we will choose him. We will Our will, our exertion will move toward him, and so he selects us. Don't you see how that still puts it back in in our responsibility? I think a lot of our desire to do that is because we have in us some desire to make it based on us. But Paul is unrelenting. It's God. It's God. It's God. It's all about God. For Like he concludes here in just a little bit. Where is it? At the end of, of chapter 11, he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Glory be to him. Okay, let's keep, keep moving. Verse 17. Another support for his assertion here. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, quote, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Remember what I told you about Pharaoh if you haven't read all that recently or if you haven't watched The King of Egypt or The Prince of Egypt? If you go back, well, I'll save that point for just a minute. Paul's main point here is that God is just in what he does because all reality is about showing and displaying his power and his might because he's God. God. This is why that, that famous, more famous verse, uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that's a pretty popular verse to have memorized. Does anybody have that memorized? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? No? So I could try to quote it from memory and nobody would know if I got it wrong. This is a common one to memorize throughout, you know, Sunday school and things like that. See if you haven't heard this. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith... And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, everything Romans 9 is teaching us, we already knew and believed. We had it in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We just never really thought through all the mechanics of it. So then, verse 18, he really brings it home. Verse 18. So then, he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. And then there's a period. This is God on his throne being God. Now, we want it to be, or we like phrases like, God helps those who help themselves. We've heard that. And many of you know that's not in Scripture, even though often people think that it is. God helps those who help themselves. And we want this to mean God hardens those who harden themselves. But we've already established, left on our own, no one helps themselves. Everyone hardens themselves. It's not as though there are some who are hardening themselves and some who are really scrambling to get to God. Left on our own, we're all just hardening ourselves. We're born wanting to be God, not wanting to worship God. And Paul could have said that. Paul could have said, in verse 18, he could have said, so then he has mercy on some, and then he hardens those who harden themselves. Because he just quoted about Pharaoh. And if you go back and read Pharaoh, both Pharaoh and God are given the credit for the hardening. It's a confusing stretch of chapters because it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then it says God hardened his heart. So he could have said, God hardens those who harden themselves. But he didn't. He is unrelentingly putting this on God's plate. Because left on our own, no one helps themselves. Left on our own, no one, I mean everyone hardens themselves. And you say, surely that's not what it means. You say, surely it can't mean that he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. It can't mean that. Well, interestingly enough, Paul thought you might say that. In the very next verse, that's the objection that he tackles. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? And we'll talk about that next week. But I think the very fact that that's the objection that he tackles next clarifies that he meant what he said in the previous verse. This does bring to question how does God hold us responsible? it does raise that question. We don't need to change the meaning so that we don't have to raise that question. We can, like Paul, like the Holy Spirit inspired in the Bible, we can tackle it head on. And like I said, we'll do that next week. Give you something to stew about this week. So I guess, uh, just concluding word on this passage. God is just, but thankfully he's also merciful. Because if he were only just, we would all be damned. But praise God, he is merciful, and sovereignly so, with infinite wisdom, with infinite goodness. So I want you to think about yourself. Have you received God's mercy in Jesus Christ? Or are you still standing on your will and your exertion? Because it, you gain nothing by your will or exertion. You gain everything by God's mercy and compassion. And it is offered to everyone. So I invite you to receive it if you have not. We're going to have a prayer time here in just a little bit while we sing, after we sing, if people are still in need of, of praying together. Um, you're welcome to pray up here anytime. There's nothing necessarily special about up here, um, but it is sometimes helpful to come and pray with people um, You can pray where you are just as easily. But I want you also to think about that someone that you long to see change. You long to see them turn toward God. Now, I want you to know that there is no one beyond hope. And I have in my mind who I'm thinking of. And I can't picture it. This individual in my mind, I cannot picture turning toward Christ. I cannot picture them being humble. (laughs) I can't picture it. But because of this, I know that this individual is not beyond God's compassion. Because it's not based on what they will one day want or will or exert. It's based on God. So maybe as we sing our final song and as we pray together, maybe you have received this compassion and this mercy, and you know it, and you don't need to pray about that, but maybe there's someone that you just want to bring before God and plead and say, please pour out your mercy and compassion on this individual. This would be a great time to do that as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are just. Thank you that you are also merciful. Lord, you are infinite and our little brains are so finite and we will never fully understand you. I am convinced that eternity in heaven will be an eternally long pursuit of getting to know you better, understanding you better. But I thank you that you, re- you have revealed this. Help us to accept it. Help us to, uh, to mold our lives around you and who you are and not try to mold you to fit into our box. And Lord, we do lift up to you. I lift up to you everyone in this room. If there is anyone who has not accepted, received, and responded to your gracious, merciful act through Jesus Christ, that you sent Christ to come and live the life that we failed to live and to die the death that we deserve so that we could be Forgiven so that we could become righteous. If someone has not received that, please, please, please draw them to you. And for all those that weigh on us, that we carry around with us, we worry about, we think about, we we lift them up to you and we ask for your mercy and compassion upon them. Because we confess that it depends on you. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.